Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayami Azikwe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. Today is Sunday, uh, February 19th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners uh, for tuning in once again to another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal special uh, worldwide radio broadcast. During the course of our program, uh, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the expulsion of Israeli diplomat uh, from the 36th Ordinary African Union Summit taking place this weekend in the Federal Democratic Republic of Ethiopia. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa has laid out the agenda for the Peace and Security Council of the African Union at his summit. The Federal Republic of Nigeria held the final rallies for presidential candidates seeking election this coming week. And the Tunisian government uh, has deported a European Union official from uh, this North African state. In the second and third hours, we continue our focus on African American History Month with a re-examination of the lifetimes and contributions of Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer of Mississippi and Malcolm X, El Hajj Malik Shabazz. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. So stay tuned. Uh, we'll take our musical interlude in the Republic of South Africa uh, with the band Stemela. Let's listen in.
Lord, I'm pulling a you. Lord, I'm pulling a you. I can. Are you pulling a me? Are you pulling a me? I say. I say. What is a man? What is a man? A man is a rolling stone. A man is a rolling stone. What is a woman? What is a woman? A woman is a grinding stone. A woman is a grinding stone.
The vibe is okay. I like it. I enjoy it. Okay, I want you to scream to the toughest of your voice. If you know this song. If you don't know it, say it on the stage and enjoy yourself. Pick up your mind.
Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, the music, classic uh, South African music uh, from the band Stamela, a selection of uh, some of their most notable compositions. And uh, this is the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, February the 19th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswatch segment of our program. And um, these are some of the headlines in today's uh, Pan-African Newswire. The African National Congress Party earlier today uh, welcomed the encouraging expulsion of a senior Israeli diplomat uh, from the African Union Summit in Addis Ababa. Sharon Barley, uh, Israel's foreign ministry deputy director general for Africa, was on yesterday, escorted out of the African Union Assembly in the Ethiopian capital. Israel accused arch foe Iran of orchestrating the move with help from Algeria and South Africa. Vincent Manguenya, spokesperson for South African President Cyril Ramaphosa, president of the summit, demanded that Israel, quote, substantiate their claim, unquote. In a statement released on Sunday, the African National Congress, which compares Israel to an apartheid state, gave clear support uh, for Bar Lee's ousting. The ANC said her removal 
was aimed at, quote, thwarting an attempt to undermine the current sitting AU summit from considering a report that is supposed to guide discussions on whether Israel must be granted an observer status, unquote. During last year's summit, the AU failed to conclude talks on Israel's controversial accreditation as an observer country. Algeria and South Africa were particularly opposed uh, to the efforts. And uh, Israel uh, yesterday condemned the severe expulsion of a senior diplomat from the African Union summit, accusing uh, Archboy Ron of orchestrating the move uh, with the help of Algeria and South Africa. A video circulating on social media shows guards escorting the Israeli Foreign Ministry Deputy Director General for Africa, Sharon Bali, out of the AU assembly taking place in the Ethiopian capital, Badis Ababa. A spokesman for the Israeli Foreign Ministry described the incident as severe, noting Bali was an accredited observer with an entry tag acclaimed denied by African Union officials. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast, and President Cyril Ramaphosa said uh, the COVID-19 pandemic highlighted the disparities in access to quality health services and products. He is together with some ministers in his cabinet attending the 36th Ordinary Session of the African Union Assembly Heads of State and Government in Ethiopia this weekend, delivering an address at a meeting of heads of state and government at the African Center for Disease Control and Prevention on Saturday. Ramaphosa said the onus falls on member states of the African Union to advance the agenda of equitable health care for all. In the West African state of Nigeria, the leading contenders in the presidential election have made their last push for support a week before the West African nation's key election. As the campaign period neared its end, both the ruling parties, Bola Tanubu and the main opposition, Atiku Abubakar, on yesterday held rallies in the Northeast where extremists have waged a decade-long insurgency against Nigeria. They both promised to improve the lives of residents in the region. On social media, third-party candidate Peter Obi of the Nigerian Labor Party, who has emerged ahead of the other 17 candidates in most polls, said Africa's most populous country needs a reset and reboot from the two major parties that have governed Nigeria since it left military rule in 1999. The February 25th election that will lead to a transitional government is the most consequential uh, vote in many years for Nigeria, a country of more than 210 million people, according to analysts. And uh, finally, uh, in the North African uh, state of uh, Tunisia, President Kais Saeed of Tunisia ordered Europe's top trade union official to leave the North African country after she addressed protesters at a demonstration organized by an influential labor union. Authorities accused Esther Lynch, the Irish General Secretary of the European Trade Union Confederation, of making statements that interfered with Tunisians' internal affairs during a Saturday protest against Saeed in the port city of Esfax. Tunisia's General Labor Union on uh, the UGTT organized a demonstration to protest a crackdown on the increasingly authoritarian president's political opponents and his critics in the media, judiciary, business community, and trade unions. In an address to the protest, Lynch demanded the release of Union leader Anis Gabi, who was arrested by security forces last month. 
He called on the Tunisian government to negotiate with the UGTT leadership and to improve the economy, which has teetered on the brink of bankruptcy amid political instability that deepened after parliamentary elections last month, in which a 11% voter turnout was reported. With that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service it is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published thousands of articles and dispatches in newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire, uh, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day. Just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access uh, to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, February the 19th, 2023, all you need to do is go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. Not only can you have access to today's program uh, for Sunday, uh, February the 19th, 2023, but well over 1,200 other archived editions of the Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. Uh, We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Well, welcome back. And uh, that was the sound of Irma Thomas, uh, the legendary Irma Thomas from uh, New Orleans, uh, Louisiana, uh, with the track entitled Time is on My Side. And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal Special Worldwide Radio Broadcast. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikaway. Today is, uh, of course, a continuation of African American History Month uh, all this month. We have been bringing you programming that is reflective of our programming throughout the year, uh, which emphasizes the lifetimes and contributions, the societal concerns, the political economy of African people in uh, the continent and throughout the world. Today, we're going to look back on the contributions of Ms. Fannie Lou Hamer of Mississippi, and uh, she, of course, intervened in uh, the civil rights struggle uh, beginning in the early 1960s to remain active for a decade and a half uh, in Mississippi and on a national level. Let's listen to a uh, presentation, a broadcast from uh, Mississippi Public Broadcasting on Fannie Lou Hamer. Hello and thank you for joining us. I'm Wilson Stribling. Welcome to another edition of At Issue, where we discuss and debate the critical issues facing the state of Mississippi and how these issues impact you. Tonight, we take a look back at the life and legacy of a civil rights icon, Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer, who would have turned 100 years old on October 6th. She went from picking cotton in Sunflower County to commanding the nation's attention during the civil rights movement. She helped organize Freedom Summer in Mississippi for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, also known as SNCC. She was also instrumental in the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party at the 1964 Democratic National Convention, where her testimony opened the country's eyes to the oppression of African Americans in Mississippi. Tonight, we'll hear from people who knew Mrs. Hamer, but first, we hear from historians at the Fannie Lou Hamer Institute for Citizenship and Democracy at Jackson State University, in their own words. She was a sharecropper. And she was influenced by her mother and her father. She was also a biblical scholar. So she was really concerned about how can you provide relief for the oppressed people? How can you provide relief, relief for the people who were mired in poverty? So she was concerned about those issues all of her life. And she often said that she didn't exactly know how to get involved in the movement, but she saw things that were happening across the country. So when, it's, when the civil rights organizations came to her community, she immediately uh, parta partook of their activities and got involved in the movement. So she grew up with an idea that she wanted to improve her life chances and the life chances of the people in her community. Her main role was that she was a civil rights worker. And, and so one of the primary responsibilities as a member of SNCC was voter registration, but, but, but she did more. She established Freedom Farm in Sunflower County. Uh, she fed people. Uh, she clothed people. She did those things that you are admonished to do, provide clothing and shelter. And, and she did that for her community in Ruleville, but also she helped people across the state of Mississippi and across the nation. She endured a violence and threats, and through it all, she kept her eyes on the prize. She kept hate out of her heart. Uh, and she challenged America to be a better nation. The Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party in 1964 went to the Democratic National Convention in Atlantic City, New Jersey, and they challenged 
the lily white segregated delegation of Democrats from Mississippi. And, and we went there with the sole purpose of replacing the segregated delegation. And we made claim that we were the legitimate delegation that represented all segments of the population in Mississippi. And the segregationist delegation did not represent all segments of the population. So Mrs. Hamer and all of us were calling for that these freedom Democrats should be seated and not the lily white segregated delegation from our state. I didn't have any idea that we would have such an, a national impact on the country. I didn't really have any idea that Mrs. Hamer, that her testimony would have such a national and international impact on the country. And if the Freedom Democratic Party is not seated now, I question America. It was overwhelming. It was emotional. It, it was uplifting. It was like being in church on a good Sunday. It was overwhelming. Is this America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, where we have to sleep with our telephones off of the hook because our lives be threatened daily because we want to live as decent human beings in America. Her testimony was just that influential. Uh, but, but her testimony helped to change the rules of the National Democratic Party. So in the future, uh, the party promised not to seat segregated delegations. They, they agreed to have uh, men and women, black and white, in the delegations. So Mrs. Hamer's testimony was able to accomplish all of that. Her 15 minutes of testimony helped to change the very foundation of Democratic Party and, by definition, Republican Party politics in America. And this was a woman with a sixth grade education. So Fannie Lou Hamer is an extraordinarily important person. She, there's a reason that not many people know about her. It's because if we tell the story around Fannie Lou Hamer, we tell the story about a person who's not supposed to be a, an American hero. She's black, she's female, she was a sharecropper, uh, didn't have a formal education. If we tell a story of American history where someone like Fannie Lou Hamer changes America, then anyone can change America who's dedicated to it. And I think that, that we don't tell that story. That's not the story I learned growing up. Uh, and that's not really the story I learned in college. We studied leaders, and leaders looked like me. Uh, leaders were, uh, had, had money. Leaders had education. Leaders went to private schools. You know. uh, and Fannie Lou Hamer represents a kind of democratic hero that we still don't know how to incorporate in the history that we teach. And we would have a, we'd be a very different America if Fannie Lou Hamer was on the standardized test, you know, but she's not. We can make this that she's known because she gave really nice speeches, because she mobilized people, because she, and all of that's very important. But she also helped change institutions. She also was a symbol representing a whole host of people who had not been heard politically. She can be also seen as a symbol of a whole host of people who currently aren't being heard politically and still need to have that kind of public voice and that kind of public presence. She could be seen as a reminder 
of what America actually is and what citizenry actually looks like. The willingness to engage your government, the willingness to challenge injustice, even at great personal cost. But I think it's really up to us as to how she's going to be remembered. Um, because unfortunately, she can also just quickly become a footnote to history. And that would be a shame. Here's what Mississippi Congressman Benny Thompson says about Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer. Quote, Fannie Lou Hamer was a clarion voice in the fight for justice and equality. I was fortunate to be one of many civic-minded individuals who was touched by her passion and purpose. Mrs. Hamer used her voice as a weapon against injustice, and that legacy lives on today. Mississippi and this country are better places because Mrs. Hamer was willing to force the issue, even at the expense of making others uncomfortable. Joining us now are two veterans of the civil rights movement, both of whom knew Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer personally. Flonzie Brown Wright is a native of Canton, where in 1968 she became the state's first female African-American elected official since Reconstruction. She is an author, lecturer, and consultant. The Reverend Rims Barber is a Chicago native who came to Mississippi as a volunteer during the Freedom Summer of 1964, and he has been here almost ever since. He has spent the better part of his life fighting for stronger public policy for those most in need of a strong voice. And we thank you both for joining us on uh, At Issue this evening. I'd like to start by finding out a little bit more about how you got to know uh, Mrs. Hamer. Uh, Ms. Wright, how did you first become associated with her? Well, uh, living in Canton, and of course, Mrs. Annie Devine was a, a co-worker of Mrs. Hamer. And I was Mrs. Devine's driver. Oh. So anytime Mrs. Devine had to go to Greenville to meetings with Mace and other political um, um, meetings and programs, I drove Mrs. Devine. So I knew of Mrs. Hamer before I met Mrs. Hamer. And on one of my trips to Greenville, there was a meeting with a group of individuals of which Mrs. Hamer was one. But I knew her, and I, I knew her. So it, when I actually actually met her, uh, it was it was it was as though I had known her all the time. But I met her through Mrs. Annie Devine. And was that before she rose to national prominence on the on the stage there in uh, at the Democratic National Convention in '64? Well, it was during the time that they were planning. They were planning that that uh, I did not attend the '64 convention, but I I raised funds mm -hmm. to send people. But uh, I, I knew of, of her work. I knew of the, the Shaq Proper's issues. I knew of her attempt to register and vote and also assist others to register and vote as well. But I met her really in the planning phase of many of these activities. Rims, how did you first come to know Fannie Lou Hamer? Well, when I was working for the Delta Ministry up out of Greenville, um, we worked in Sunflower County of Mont as well as other counties, and she was instrumental in getting more voter registration going and in 1967 getting people to run for public office for the first time um, with a chance to win. Um, so I got to, to meet her then, you know, and I remember you know, sitting in her carport uh, on a stool, shucking peas and talking politics, <laughs> <laughs> that sort of thing, uh, as, as she was inspiring people to get out and vote that year. And that's where, where it really all began for her, was when she attempted to register to vote, was it not? Oh, yes. She, but that, that was a couple years earlier mm -hmm. when she tried it in 62 or 3 and was thrown off the plantation and 
came then to live in rule in the town of Ruleville. Uh, but she was she lost her job, her house, everything. Uh, Just for attempting to register to vote. Yes. She was not successful that, that first not, time not because of all of the hoops time, no. that they made took people a, uh, a like her go trips, through. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ms. Wright, what was it about her? Uh, there were lots of people involved in the movement back then. What was so different about Mrs. Hamer uh, that propelled her into a leadership position uh, to where ultimately she was, uh, she was there in front of the country? Well, just listen to Mrs. Hamer. Um, it was in her eyes. Um, you could see almost through, through, the, through her eyes. Um, she was committed, uh, and even though she only had a sixth grade education, she knew the issues. She was a well-respected individual, so consequently, it was not difficult uh, to get people to follow her because they, here, here they see a woman who is making a sacrifice for so many uh, to try and register, to try and get others to register, being thrown off the plantation, going to jail, being beaten, and never losing her sense of purpose. And so it wasn't a fly-by-night thing for her. Uh, she internalized the issues of registration and what she could do to encourage people and to educate people on not only the right to vote, but the importance of the, of the right to vote. As you know, history teaches us in 1963, we conducted a mock election because we had not gained the right to vote at that time. So in 1963, uh, during the, the gubernatorial race, we ran Aaron Henry for governor, which was also one of our colleagues, and Reverend Edwin King for lieutenant governor. And even though we knew our vote didn't count, because of her constancy and the, and the dedication of so many others, uh, the mock election resulted in 80,000 African Americans coming out in mock polling places across the state to vote for those two individuals. And even though it didn't count, but what it did, it showed us the power. It showed us that if our votes could count, the power that we had to change things, to effectuate change. So this was in 1963. And so following, um, when we got the, actually got the Civil Rights and the Voting Rights Acts passed, it let us know again that no longer could we sit idly by and allow people to make decisions for us because it gave us the opportunity and the right to make decisions for ourselves. And Mrs. Heyman was a very, very instrumental part of that. And, of course, when those three women stepped out, and we just saw their pictures a few minutes ago, when they stepped out um, uh, in Washington as a, a trio, uh, everybody knew that these three women meant business because our, men, our women had to cover and protect our brothers and our fathers because they could not step out the way that they did because of economic uh, catastrophe. So it was the women. And, of course, you probably are familiar with the film, uh, Standing on My Sister's Shoulders, from which that clip was also included. Um, but it was, it was the women who really made the movement work. Mrs. Hamer was a singer. And, of course, she sang a lot of her pain away. And even when she was in jail and beaten by black prisoners uh, from the back of the jail, you could hear her singing, This Little Light of Mine. And everybody up and down the jail, the hallways of the jail, would, would um, join in in singing that because, see, they can't take your singing from you. They can take your rights, if you will, but they cannot take that inner soul of you from you. And Mrs. Hamer exemplified the inner soul of an individual. 
Rims, talk for me a little bit about the uh, the impact and the importance of her testimony at the 1964 uh, convention, why that was so significant. She talked about the, what she had endured in the South uh, as just a regular citizen of the South, what it was like for an African-American woman in the South back then, uh, presumably to an audience that had not heard a lot of these stories before. Why was that so significant? I think it was for the first time that many people came to understand what the dangers were that, I mean, in those days, it was not just segregation. It was not just you couldn't use the drinking fountain or try on a pair of shoes before you bought them. It was real danger. Ms. Wright, was that that speech that she gave before the credentials committee was that was that a turning point not just in the the committee structure or the the, the convention structure but also in the, the movement itself absolutely because again these women stood on principle because they were offered two seats two non-voting seats they were offered two seats at large or yes. and, and what, would, what was it she said we didn't come all this way for for, for no two, two seats, seats. Well, that two was seats. that was uh, from Unita Blackwell because mm -hmm. these women coalesced and got together and said, well, what must we do? And so uh, Mrs. Uh, Ms. Blackwell uh, asked Mrs. Hamer, Mrs. Hamer, what are we going to do? And Mrs. Hamer say, we came here with nothing, and we're going to leave with nothing. We will not accept these two seats. Two seats do not represent the, the people that we have brought along with us. And so then the next year, four years later, then, of course, they were seated. But again, it took courage for these women and people to come together to try and make change. And of course, we have now followed that through the first black president. And so actually, uh, the stance that they took then ultimately resulted in, some years later, America electing uh, the first African-American president. So the, her impact and the power that she had years ago, we're still talking about her today, aren't we? We're talking about her when she's been dead 50 years, probably, and almost 100 years old. Yeah. And so this is the kind of impact that people's lives need to make. When you are serious about a commitment, you just can't do it because it's a popular thing to do. You'd, I've been to jail. I've been shot at. I've been tear gassed. I've had my life threatened and the lives of my children threatened because I was involved in the Madison County Movement. And Reverend Barber knows that very, very well. But you see, you can't stop because the fear of death. And I knew at any point, just like her life could have been taken, so many other lives were taken, and so many other lives could have been taken. So we not only lived it, but Reverend Barber, we lived through it, and we lived to tell it. So we have to tell these stories. This is not something we do because people think it's a nice idea. We do it because we're committed to teaching our children and our grandchildren and this world about the sacrifices that people made, not necessarily black people, because Reverend Barber's been in jail more times than I can tell. But he, he, never stopped, he never stopped because he was committed to a cause which was right, and it still is today. Rims, if, if Fannie, Mrs. Hamer were still here today, if Fannie Lou Hamer were with us today, what do you think she would be most concerned about? Well, I think that we'd be looking for and we always are looking for a new generation to come along and set the agenda. And some of the young people in Black Lives Matter are doing that. And I think that's important. And, you know, in 64, we were led by young people. I mean, Fonzie was 
A cute young lady then back then. <laughs> Aren't you kind? <laughs> and still is, of course. Uh, but it was young people who really led things and made things happen. And that has to be today. I mean, Miss Hamer would be looking for the young people to come forward and set the new agenda for today. Ms. Wright, what do you think that Mrs. Hamer would be uh, would be concerned about if she were with us today? I think Mrs. Hamer would, would expect for those of us who live through it to continue to try and create teachable moments. Um, in my capacity as an independent um, consultant, and I have an opportunity to teach and lecture students from junior high, high school, college, and university levels. And sometimes when, I'm, when I hear people talk about this, they say, well, girl, I'm just sick and tired of being sick and tired. They don't even understand the genesis mm-hmm. of that That's statement. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think we have to create teachable moments because I was teaching a boot camp in, in Canton uh, last year, and someone made that comment. I said, as a young man, I said, stand for me. I said, do you know, know where that comment came from? Well, I just heard somebody say it. I said, then let me teach you. <laughs> and then and it's, I just so happened to have on my DVD player some clips of Mrs. Hamer, Mrs. Devine, and some others, and I put her face on the screen. And I said, do you know this, you know this lady? I've seen her face, and this is Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer, who actually coined that phrase. I'm just sick and tired of being sick and tired. And that's when you have gone as far as you can go, and you think that you can't go, as we say, another further, another day. Somehow something rises up inside of you and said, hey, you can make it. You've got to make it because people are depending upon you to make it. So we have to create and find teachable moments so that our intergenerational uh, group will know, know our history and their own history and be in a position to carry that history on as well. What do we know about the years between uh, the, the convention in particular in 1964 and the time of her death, which was more than 10 years later? What did she do after sort of rising to that, um, I won't call it the pinnacle, but to the, 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 the national spotlight? Well, she concentrated on building up things in Sunflower County, primarily. She had the Freedom Farm. She, you know, got people together to to grow vegetables and to raise pigs so that they could have food. She worked to get people registered to vote across the state. She helped build up the party, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, and then in 68, combining and coalescing with the Loyalist Democrats to actually be seated at the Democratic Convention. Uh, so she was deeply involved in all that, that stuff. But she fought for the rights of people to not be hungry, to not be ignorant, you know, for the school systems to to really respond to the needs of the children so that we could have a better community. Mm-hmm. But do you think that she would be satisfied that, that we have come where we need to, to be in, in that regard, in Sunflower mm-hmm. County, in any of the surrounding counties in that part of we the state? Have, we have made so much progress that it's wonderful. But there are still gaps, hundreds and thousands of people left behind for whom life has not changed, who are just as poor today as they were back then 50 years ago who are living in hovels that you and I would not live in, which we would call uninhabitable. Mm 
which are often defined as uninhabitable, but people are living in them. Uh, housing is a, still a big problem in Mississippi. There are thousands of people who are hungry in Mississippi. There are other things that need to be changed. You know, we have some Medicaid issues to make sure that people get adequate health care that have to be addressed. We should have a change in the state flag so that it represents everyone. Um, there are lots of things that could be done that I think Ms. Hamer would be on the front line fighting for. Ms. Wright, what do you think she would think about Sunflower County and the surrounding area today? Well, again, to your question, you see, Mrs. Hamer did, didn't realize that she was making the kind of history at that speech that, that she ultimately and consequently made. So she would continue on the path that she was on, as Reverend Barber says, voter registration, even though we consider that speech to be the pinnacle, the apex of her life, that was one of many. It, it, the, fact, uh, the fact is she had a, a national and probably an international audience at that time, but she didn't see that as, as some great thing she was doing or saying. She just knew that she had to rise to the occasion. And the reason Mrs. Hamer was chosen between the three women, Mrs. Anna Devine was, was, it was educated, as well as Mrs. Victoria Gray. But, but because Mrs. Hamer could command your attention with her voice, with her eyes, with her passion, she was chosen to speak before the Credentials Committee. But she didn't think she was doing something so ostentatious. She just knew that this was part of what she would do on a daily basis. And so on uh, daily, her life continued on the path that she was already on, and which was continued voter registration. She ran for public office later on. Senate, I believe it was. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so she was continuing to not only run for office, but to encourage others to run for office because, see, once we got it, it took us a little while to get this voter registration thing. It took us a while. But once we got it, once we understood that we could command change just by getting the right to vote, can you imagine going to the registrar's office and being given a two-page, 21-item questionnaire asking you how many bubbles in a bar of soap, how many feathers are on a chicken, and how many jelly beans in a pound of candy? just to, are you a communist, just to register and vote? And so these were the, the kinds of things she would have continued to work on even at 100 years old. Mm. She would have been telling us, man, look, y'all babies, y'all go out there and look, you know, I, you know Mama Fanny Luton got to, look, y'all got to go out there and fix that stuff. So that's what she would still be doing. She would, in a, wheel, in a wheelchair or a cane, y'all take me out here to this rally, just let me just sing a little song, this little light of mine, because, she was, because it was in her. And see, once, once it's in you, once you get it, you cannot pretend that you didn't get it. And so Mrs. Hamer would still be continuing in the way that she possibly could to uh, enlighten, encourage, and educate our people as to the, um, uh, the, uh, the kinds of challenges that we have had to overcome and not let those things slip away that are continuously, little by little, being being uh, taken away, and so she said, "Y'all rise up now. Y'all got to get up, get up, rise up." Flonzie Brown Wright, Reverend Rems Barber, thank you both very much for your time on that issue this evening. And thank you. Thank you. We are out of time. Don't forget, you can watch the program on our website, mpbonline.org/issue, and we invite you to join us again next Friday night here on MPB for another edition of At Issue. Good night.
Mobile, but also she helped people across the state of Mississippi and across the nation. She endured a violence and threats, and through it all, she kept her eyes on the prize. She kept hate out of her heart, uh, and she challenged America to be a better nation. The Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party in 1964 went to the Democratic National Convention in Atlantic City, New Jersey, and they challenged. Welcome back. And uh, that was a uh, Mississippi uh, public uh, broadcasting uh, program on the lifetimes and contributions of Miss Fannie Lou Hamer. And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikaway, and this is uh, African American History Month, and uh, we're focusing uh, on uh, the various aspects of uh, African American history. Uh, resistance history to oppression and exploitation. And uh, we're going to take a um, musical interlude and uh, we'll be back with more of our programming for this week. Broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. 
We're going to continue uh, with our African-American history programming uh, with uh, the lifetimes and contributions of Malcolm X, El Hodge, Malik Shabazz. On um, Tuesday, uh, we'll represent uh, the 58th anniversary of the assassination of Malcolm X in New York City at the Audubon Ballroom on February 21st of 1965. Leading up to that time period, Malcolm X was involved in organizing uh, for the Nation of Islam, the Muslim Mosque Incorporated, and the Organization of Afro-American Unity. Uh, He worked with countless other uh, organizations, uh, coalitions, and activists. He traveled the world and made an impact, uh, a legacy which still continues until uh, this third decade of the 21st century. First, we're going to listen uh, to the rare archival audio file of a debate between uh, Malcolm X and uh, African-American novelist, historian, essayist, and public intellectual James Baldwin. Now, this took place in 1961 uh, at a radio station in New York City. Let's listen uh, to this discussion. First, I would like to say that I'm speaking uh, not for myself, but as a follower and helper and representative of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, who is the spiritual head of the fastest-growing group, religious group, of black people here in the Western Hemisphere. When we give our views, we don't give them as a civic group, we don't give them as a political group, but we give them primarily as a religious group. And any solution that we support, we absolutely uh, feel that it's a religious solution rather than a political solution. One of the one of the reasons that the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, uh, in teaching us here in America, uh, is giving us a solution that differs drastically from the sit-in movement. He's trying to make us men. Now, the the very fact that you find students all over the world today are standing up for their rights and fighting for their rights, but here in America, the so-called Negro students have allowed themselves to be maneuvered under a tag uh, of sit-in. Actually, I guess it describes, it. the name describes its nature. It's a passive thing. And uh, if their goal is uh, integration, it's not a worthwhile one, but if their goal is freedom, justice, and equality, then that's a worthwhile goal. If integration is going to give the black people in America complete freedom, complete justice, and complete equality, then it's a worthwhile goal. The holding this integration uh, uh, bottle and dangling it in front of the Negroes in America today has actually uh, disabled them, or it has uh, nullified their ability to stand up and fight like a man for something that is theirs by right, rather than to just sit around and beg and wait for the white man to make up his mind that they're worthy to have this type thing. I think that this is, in my opinion, why we disagree with the uh, sit-in movement. If uh, they are willing to wait for another hundred years for the white man to change his mind, to accept them as a human being, then they're wrong. Uh, But if they're willing to lay down their life tonight or in the morning in order that we can have what is ours by right tonight or in the morning, then it's a good movement. But as long as they're willing to wait for the white man to make up his mind that they are qualified to be respected as human beings, then I'm afraid that all of their uh, waiting and their planning is for naught. Uh, as, as Thurgood Marshall said on New Year's Eve, 
Uh, The Supreme Court brought about the desegregation decision, I think, uh, six or seven years ago, and there is only 6% desegregation in America right now. We don't call uh, two students, black students, going to the University of Georgia integration, nor do we call uh, four children, black children, going to school in New Orleans integration, nor do we call a handful of black students going to school in Little Rock integration. If every black man in the state of Arkansas can't go to any school he wants, that's not integration. And if every black child in the state of Louisiana cannot go to any school that they are qualified for in the morning, then that's not integration. And likewise with Georgia and any other state in America. It's no integration with us until the entire thing is given is laid on the table, not a hundred years from now, but in the morning. And at the rate that the NAACP, CORE, and uh, uh, the Urban League is uh, willing to accept the, the change of attitude in the white man's mind, we who are Muslims feel we'll be sitting around here in America for another thousand years, uh, not waiting for civil rights or something like that, but even waiting to be uh, granted the rights of a human being. I have a feeling that um, a great many words have been floating around, have been floating around this table, which need to be um, redefined. And that, by the way, is the problem I think which faces, facing this entire country. Now, I don't agree with Mr. X about the student movement, and I do know something about the war incipient war between the students and some of the leaders. I know, I know the gap, the enormous gap between the NAACP and the children in the South. I don't agree that to sit in, you know, I don't agree that it is necessarily passive. I think it demands a tremendous amount of power in one's, in one's personal life and, and, and in terms of political polemical activity, sometimes to, to, to sit down and do nothing or seem to do nothing. But finally, when the, when the civil movement started, or when a great many things started in the, in the, in the Western world, it was not, I, don't think, I think it had a great deal less to do with equality than it had to do with power. And I do think we have to talk about, we have to decide what we want, you know. Now, what has happened in the world in relation to black people is not the white people have suddenly changed or become more, uh, more conscious of, of a black man's humanity. It is, what has happened is very simple. This is the white power has been broken. And, and this means, among other things, that it is no longer possible for an Englishman to describe an African and make the African believe it. It is no longer possible for a white man in this country to tell a Negro who he is and make the Negro believe this. The controlling image is absolutely gone. Now, it seems to me the responsibility which faces us then, the question which faces us, which faces me in any case, is since there is a distinction between power and equality, there is a distinction between power and freedom. And I know that in terms, for example, of, of Africa, that an African nation cannot expect to be respected unless it is free. I know that it, unless, it is, unless it has its political destiny in its own hands, which is what we mean by power, there is no hope that the English will deal with an African nation on, they will deal with an African nation as a, sub, as a subjugated nation as long as it is in fact subjugated. That is not quite the same situation that we face here in America as American Negroes. I can see that I might very well, for one reason or another, leave this country tomorrow and never come back. But this will not make me, this will not cease, I will not cease to be an American Negro for this reason. And the history of our, our history in this country is something that I think we have to face, especially since we're demanding that white people face it. And whether I like it or not, whether, whether you like it or not, this issue about integration is a, is a false issue because we have been integrated here ever since we got here. I am no longer a pure African. There are no pure Africans in this country. The history which has produced us is something which in any case, we're going to have to deal with one of these days. Now, I think it is a mistake 
to pretend this issue did not happen. What we're arguing about, I think, one of the things in any case I think I would be arguing about is the effect of this on the Negro world and the great divisions in it, so that, so that it does in fact range from people who imagine they are white, you know, who never talk to Negroes, to people who imagine that if they can make a buck, they will somehow beat the system, to homeless and, and demoralized black boys and girls who have nowhere to, who don't know where to go. The issue, it seems to me, the reason that the city movement is important, the reason this whole ferment is of such importance, is not that I want anybody's cup of coffee, or even to go, particularly to anybody's school. It is because the country cannot afford, the country cannot afford to have, as it has at this moment, millions of black boys and girls in various ghettos all over the country, either perishing literally, or perishing, I must say, finally, with bitter, the kind of demoral, demoralization and bitterness and hatred, which can, after all, blow this country wide apart. The importance, in my mind, of the Muslim movement, in conclusion, is that it is the first time, I think, in the history of this country that uh, a Negro audience, a, a, a Negro laborer, a Negro, a Negro schoolboy has heard his own condition described and without anybody trying to flinch from it. It is very different hearing a speech by Roy Wilkins in which, you know, um, one is told in one way or another that tomorrow will be better. Uh, and I think this has a tremendous effect this is the reason the Muslim, I think the Muslim speaker has so much power over his audience. It comes out of a failure in the Republic. This country has lied about the Negro situation for 100 years. And now what has happened is the lies are no longer viable, can no longer be, can, can no longer be accepted even when they make it told. And the country has waited so long and it does not know how to handle this. And it's created a moral vacuum. There's a moral vacuum in the, in the Negro ghettos and the same way there's a moral vacuum in New Orleans which is filled with desperate people. Now, I don't think that we can afford this. It seems to me, and now I speak for myself, my call with the official Negro leadership, and my call with um, those such Negroes as imagine they are um, integrated or imagine they have somehow escaped the Negro condition, is that they are not willing to do what I think is absolutely essential when it's got to re-examine the basis, the standards of this country which not only afflict black people, they afflict the entire country. No one in this country, as far as I can see, really knows any longer what it means to be, to be an American. He, he does not know what he means by freedom. He does not know what he means by equality. We live in the most abysmal ignorance of not only the condition of 20 million Negroes in our midst, but the, the whole nature of the life being lived in the rest of the world. And I think that the American, the American white man, the Republic, is paying and beginning to pay for his treatment of the Negro in terms of what he does not know about the rest of the world. You cannot live, it seems to me, in a, you cannot live 30 years, I'd say, with something in your closet which you know is there and pretend it is not there without something terrible happening to you. By and by, what you can, what I cannot say, if I know that any one of you, you know, has um, murdered your brother, your mother, and the corpse is in this room and under the table, and I know it, and you know it, and you know I know it. And we cannot talk about it. It takes no time at all before we cannot talk about anything. Before absolute silence descends. And that kind of silence is descended on this country. I think that this country has become a, incon almost inconceivably radical. It has really got to do something that's not done before. And this involves the humanity of everybody in it. And the key to this is in the Negro.
If one can face that, one can face anything. But that has not been faced. And I think this is the reason for the confusion and the ferment and the great, great danger. Again, let me say this, and I will stop. I'm not religious. Um, and therefore, since I'm not religious, all theologies, uh, for me, are suspect. All theologies have a certain use. But um, I never, for example, believe in the myth of the virgin birth. I never quite understood why it was necessary to propagate such a peculiar notion. Therefore, you know, in, as theologies go, even the Muslim theology is just as good as any. One cannot quarrel with it there. I can't, anyway. But I personally, I personally reject that theology as I reject all others. And I don't think that we need it. Now, this is a great, this is a gamble. This is a, this is a very reckless thing to say. And perhaps, you know, I'm, perhaps it's very mystical. I know the kind of world I would like to see. I would like to think of myself as not needing to be, um, um, supported by a myth. I would like to think of myself as being able to face whatever it is I have to face as me, dealing with what I have and what, and what there is, without having my identity dependent on something which finally has to be believed, which cannot be tested. This is why one is converted to a religion, you know. I think that it, there's nothing very dangerous in it. What I would like to see and maybe we'll never live to see it, is a world in which these things are not necessary, which I will not need to invent, in effect, a heritage and a history that can deal with the one I have, and will not need, in order to, in order to deal with the rest of the world, will not need to feel superior to them, but simply, simply be a part of them. And it seems to me this may happen. Well, I'll never see a world in which there are no blacks, there are no whites, where it does not matter. Because as long as it does matter, as long as it does matter, and it doesn't matter who is wearing a shoe, the confusion will be great and the bloodshed will be great. Well, I, uh, as a black man, and proud of being a black man, I, I can't conceive of myself as having any desire whatsoever to lose my identity. I wouldn't want to live in a world uh, where none of my kind existed. I, and I do think that the Negro, American, American so-called Negro, is the only person on earth who would be willing to lose his identity in a, what you might call a, a new product. Uh, this, I heard one fellow say one day that, that there eventually intermarriage and intermixing would take place on such a vast scale that it would produce a chocolate-colored race. And, I, and Martin Luther King was in a uh, discussion, televised discussion, with a white uh, newspaper man. I saw it on the television a couple months ago. And this white newspaper man put this to him. Uh, he said, he pointed out that he's proud of his white race. He's proud of what he is. He's proud of the, his racial characteristics uh, to the extent where he has no desire to lose it by mixing with any other race. And the thing that he said he couldn't understand was why the so-called Negroes don't have the same uh, racial pride that whites have in trying to retain their characteristics. And Martin Luther King never answered him, although he should have answered him. Uh, I think that it is uh, that it's disastrous for the black people in America to reach the point where they, their race pri racial pride uh, disappears and they don't, want, they don't care whether their blood is mixed up with someone else's. 
I think that also one of the things that brings this about, as the Honorable Elijah Muhammad teaches us, the very fact that you have to refer to the black man in America as a Negro shows you that right there something is wrong. An African doesn't accept this term Negro, and uh, you find they teach us in the educational system of this country that Negro is a Spanish word that's supposed to mean black, uh, yet, when you find the uh, black people who live in Spanish-speaking countries of South and Central America, they don't accept the word Negro to identify themselves. Uh, no one allows himself to be classified <coughs> under the word Negro, but the black man here in America who is a descendant of the slaves. And very seldom is it ever applied to anybody but the black man in here, here in America who is the descendant of the slaves. When you ask a man his identity, he should use a a word that connects him with a, with a culture. If you ask him his nationality, it should connect him with, with a nation. Like if I ask a man his nationality and he says German, that connects him with Germany. Or if he says, uh, even if he says German-American, it still connects him with uh, having originated. His family, his history uh, has originated in Germany. If he says he's French-American, it connects him uh, with France. But when you ask the black man in America, and he tells you Negro, he doesn't put any other he doesn't he doesn't put any any other country a front in in, uh, in front. He puts American Negro, or he'll just say Negro. This doesn't identify him. And usually, when you find a man who calls himself a Negro, he can't tell you what language that he spoke before he came to this country. It's of no consequence, no interest. He believes that prior to coming here, he was a savage in the jungle, and therefore he had no language. And this justifies his uh, lack of knowledge concerning that mother tongue today. And the history, as uh, Mr. Baldwin pointed out, of the white man here in America and the black man here in America, points up the fact that the Negro, or the man here who calls himself a Negro, is just an ex-slave. If he is an ex-slave, I'd rather say he's still a slave. But he's wearing his slave master's name, the name that was given to him during slavery. He's speaking the language of the man who made him a slave because he has no knowledge of his own tongue. He only knows the history, his own history, as taught to him by his former slave master, who purposely hid from him his, uh, his own history to make him think that he was an inferior being before being brought here. And uh, Mr. Muhammad teaches us that until the black man here in America is uh, connected or reestablished uh, or given, an, given some knowledge of his existence prior to coming here to America, his own uh, appraisal of himself, will be so low that he'll actually think that the white man is doing him a favor to let him be here in America no matter what his status is. And he'll, he also, and this is one of the reasons today why he fights so hard, some of them, to sit down next to the white man. They actually think that the white man is the personification of perfection. And whenever they're allowed to go live in his neighborhood or sit in his restaurant or uh, uh, mingle or socialize with him, that they have attained, that they have made progress. But... Uh, when they go back and study the history of their own people and the accomplishments of their own people, the civilizations and cultures, black civilizations and black cultures that existed in Africa at a time when the whites in Europe were living a cave-like uh, 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 existence, then immediately their appraisal of, their self, of themselves uh, begins to uh, go higher. And they don't think that to beg uh, 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 somebody to mingle with them in this country is any kind of progress whatsoever. And I would like to say one more thing, too, on that nonviolent thing, that the black man in America is the only one who is encouraged to be nonviolent, or the black man in Africa, or the black man in Asia. Uh, never do you find white people encouraging other whites to be nonviolent. 
uh, whites uh, idolize fighters. They idolize the Hungarian freedom fighters who came to this country and uh, right now can work on jobs that the sit-in students can't get, can live in neighborhoods that the sit-in students can't live in, and can go into public places that the students sit in can't go because they are fighters. Everyone loves a fighter. They respect the fighter. And, but at the same time that they admire these fighters, they encourage the so-called Negro in America to get his uh, uh, desires fulfilled with a sit-in stroke or a passive approach or a love-your-enemy uh, approach or pray for those who despitefully use you. This is insane. And we feel as Muslims, until we see white people practicing this nonviolence, take Pearl Harbor, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, the American white man didn't say, pray for the Japanese and uh, let them now bomb Manhattan or uh, Staten Island. No, they said, praise the Lord, but pass the ammunition. But, uh, and if anybody comes along, like Mr. Muhammad, and begins to point out uncompromisingly in blunt terms that don't need diplomatic language that can be misinterpreted, and he begins to point out these atrocities and crimes that have been committed against black people here in America today. The white man can never deny the fact that he's guilty, but he'll always say, well, forget the past and let's look forward. But uh, uh, the only people who are told to forget the injustices that have been done to them are the black people. But when it comes to whites, right today, you can turn on any radio, turn on any television, read any newspaper, and the uh, Jews have magnified to the world the crimes that were committed against them 20 years ago or so by Eichmann, uh, and they keep you sitting on the edge of your seat wanting to strangle Eichmann. It's almost like a hate Germany uh, campaign, but yet the Jews are never accused of teaching hate because they remind, of the world, remind the world of the crimes that were committed against them. But when the black man here in America begins to stand up and speak about the crimes that are committed against him throughout America every day, no let up, just different forms, immediately a black man who dwells on that is considered a racist, considered an extremist, or considered someone who is advocating a doctrine that will bring about violence and bring about a deterioration in the so-called good relations that are supposed to be developing between black and white in this country. So we just can't go along with any of that. And I think that this is the thing that the white people of America should realize, that Mr. Muhammad's teaching, and it's spreading, so you have to deal with it, Mr. Muhammad's teaching doesn't teach the black man to wait for the white man to change his mind. Mr. Muhammad's teaching is changing the, the black man's appraisal of himself. And as soon as the black man uh, undergoes a reappraisal of himself and realizes that he's a man too, he says to himself, why should he wait for the Supreme Court? to give him what a white man has when he's born? Why should he wait for the Congress or the Senate or the President to tell him that he should have this when if he's a man the same as that man is a man, he doesn't need any President, he doesn't need any Congress, he doesn't need any Supreme Court, he doesn't need anybody but himself to bring about that which is his if he is a man. I think we, I think in the first place, there's some um, disagreement between Mr. Mr. Malcolm X and myself as to what this heritage is. And I want to go back to that in a minute. Something else at the moment is bothers me. That I think there's a great deal. There's a lot of. There's not much clarity in this question of violence, from my point of view, from where I sit. Whether whether or not, um, no matter what Mr. X wants, no matter what I want, I believe, for example, that one of these days, maybe tomorrow, Birmingham, Alabama will probably blow up. And if Birmingham blows up, it will not just stretch to Atlanta. It will stretch to Boston. There's a kind of fuse 
there's a kind of um, there's, a, there's an undercurrent, there's something which, which unites all the Negroes in this country, so that what happens in Birmingham can blow up Harlem. It has happened before. And if, unless we are extremely swift and miraculously swift, it will happen again. I take it, I take violence, I'm trying to say this, I take it as, as given. I think it is coming in any case. What exercises my mind is what happens then. In the first place, this country, in this position in the world now, this extremely precarious position in the world now, the situation of the Negro here is different from that of the Jews in Germany, let us say, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, in that, in that if Birmingham should blow up, if they, sh if they should really erupt in, in America this week, really of real, of real, uh, real racial violence, it would have repercussions all over the world. I'm afraid we have to face this fact that when the Jews are being slaughtered in Germany in the very beginning, no one seemed to care. Millions of Jews crossed the world, and boatloads of them, and no country would let them in. But the American Negro has something working for him in this context, or the country has something working against it, which I don't think he can afford. But I want to get back to this question of identity, because it seems to me this is where the, this is where really where um, all the questions are. Uh, Mr. Malcolm X disagrees with the word Negro, and I can see his point. I can say that it doesn't at the moment much, in much interest me, but um, that may be my fault. What I am concerned about, though, is the actual history of Negroes in this country. I think one has got to face the fact that it has been one of the ugliest histories in the history of the West. But if one can face this fact, there is another fact which I think one has got to face, which is also one of the most remarkable histories that we know of. And I'm not, I'm not talking about uh, all the good things that white people did, you know, for the poor darkies and all that um, jazz. I'm talking about the effect of this experience on, on the people who underwent it, the masters and the slaves, what it did to them. I would be a very different person if I were not the descendant of a slave. In fact, I am the descendant of a slave. This is one of the things I have to deal with because it is true. And I don't think that, that it has to be a badge of shame. Negroes are not the only slaves. We are not the only descendants of slaves. I can't eliminate one half of my ancestors. My grandmother was raped, let us, let us say. This is a fact I have to face. This means that I'm no longer a pure African and that my relationship to white people is not that of a Congolese to Belgium and cannot be no matter how hard I try to make it that. My relationship to white people is, is, is dictated by my mother's relationship to them, my father's, by the fact that my grandmother uh, nursed children who grew up to lynch her children, that my father's fathers were always on the heel of some benevolent white man, and the whole myth of this experience has come into being in the country, which is at its highest seen in Falkland and its lowest seen in Margaret Mitchell. Now, I don't think that we can be liberated from this history until we are willing to deal with it, and this means that I have to deal with it as well as any white man in the country has to deal with it. There's really too much and too little to say. What is the issue here? Malcolm X wants us to act like men, and it seems to me, one of the things that I object to here, I don't think that the fact that white people have done what they have done, um, Patrick Henry is not one of my heroes, I'm sorry. Most of the American heroes have never been in my Hall of Fame. I don't see any reason for me, at this late date, to begin mounting myself on an image which I've always found, frankly, to be mediocre and not a standard to which I myself could repair. I don't think that black men now should, be, because white men have committed these crimes, that black men should, should do the same thing. I think that there is something absolutely insidious 
even, even if I cannot make this absolutely clear, there's something to my mind always to be insidious in the whole question of race. The white man's racial characteristics, of which the white man claims to be so proud, have reduced him in this country to, some, to, to incredible levels. There is nobody in the world, I think, sadder than a, a white man in the deep south who only has his skin and his blue eyes and his yellow hair and nothing else. I don't think that I want to go through the world, and I will not encourage my nephew to begin to go through the world only armed with his, the color of his skin. The only thing that really arms anybody when the chips are down is how closely, how thoroughly he can relate to himself and deal with the world, yes, as a man, you know, but I don't think, I think, when I talk about standards, I say they're all going to be revised. It's one of the standards that has to be revised. I don't think that a warrior is necessarily a man. And in fact, it has been proven that football players and all these people in teams and in armies are not men. It is very difficult to be a man. And what it involves, for me, anyway, is an ability to look at the world, to look at whatever it is, and to say what it is and to deal with it, to face it, even if it does mean laying down your life, because in a way it always does mean that. Welcome back. And uh, that was an uh, excerpt from a debate uh, between Malcolm X and James Baldwin in April of 1961 uh, in a radio station in New York City. And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal Special Worldwide Radio Broadcast. This is our African-American uh, History Month uh, programming for 2023. Uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We want to go back and listen to another Royal Archival Radio Broadcasts, uh, also from 1961, uh, uh, a debate uh, between uh, Malcolm X uh, of the Nation of Islam and E.V. Rich uh, of the Congress on Racial Equality. Rather to assert that he already has it and that the white man ought to recognize this. And this was an effective mechanism, an effective technique. And this is an important technique in the whole method of nonviolence in terms of putting pressure on the white community with the result of changing attitudes. You see, this is essentially what we feel. We feel that this is a moral and a psychological problem as well as a legal problem. Uh, speaking of well, this pressure and speaking of this $20 billion purchasing power, Malcolm, uh, you disagree, as you have stated, uh, with CORE, you disagree on sit-ins, you disagree on the freedom buses, and yet you would picket stores and uh, establish boycotts uh, against white business people. We've never picketed stores, and we've never established boycotts well, against now, white I, business Well, now again, people. I am quoting from this book, which you have the right to contradict. He's absolutely wrong. Uh, well, uh, Muslims have never picketed any stores, nor have we ever practiced any kind of boycott. Do you believe uh, in an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth? Definitely. The, the Bible itself believes in an eye for The white man believes the in Bible an eye. The Bible does not say an eye for an eye Most and a tooth for a tooth. No, it doesn't, you know, Matt. We don't want to get off into it. No, well, let's not, let's not <laughs> yeah, talk about the Bible. Don't let's get off into it. What I want to say is... Hold that just one second. I know you have it there. Eustace, will you come in and settle it? What I want to say to Malcolm is that his analogy between the 20 million person power of Negroes in the United States and the bringing into the question of Norwegian, Sweden, the, and Swedes and so on, all of that is altogether different. The thing that makes it so difficult with us here is that what he says is, has a great degree of plausibility. But what he doesn't tell you is, what he doesn't say, is, what he doesn't realize or else doesn't care to bring it to the front is, how is the 20 million or 20 billion dollars made up? From where does it come? How would he get it if he were to 
how much of it would he carry with him? How much of it would he get? How much of it would he have if he were to follow uh, the Muslim teaching of separation? He wouldn't have much of it. You see, the Norwegians control Norway. The Danes control Denmark. <laughs> and their partisan power, whatever it is, they use it for themselves. We don't control the United States of America, nor its economic uh, uh, yes, this, this goes along with uh, one of the things you said at lunch. May I say at this yeah. point, it was a delightful lunch. I wish we'd had a microphone there, yeah. believe me. But one of the things you said at lunch, uh, that the Negro could not have survived if it had not been for this uh, Christian spirit over the years. Uh, it could have been uh, another Eichmann case, and uh, so that you would not have had the opportunities that you have now if it had not been for this Christian spirit. I know, uh, Malcolm, that you're anxious to get in here now. No, Malcolm, uh, he is looking for... No, uh, I'm not. I'm, I'm, uh, are you trying no, to find no, an eye no. for an eye? Well, it's in there. I'll get I know it's it. in but there. I, mean, I, I think she will admit it's in there. But I also not think get on that. There's a point that uh, you, you brought out. You that didn't I think ask, but just a minute, Malcolm. You didn't answer Mr. Gay's question, and I think that this is a How very good question. How can I answer when you cut me off? I Go ahead, Malcolm. When you mentioned this black bourgeoisie, uh, situate a book that uh, Dr. Frazier wrote, uh, and the failure of the, that type of Negro to be successful uh, by using the economic enterprises. What you failed to uh, point out was, in the past, all of these efforts made on the part of the Negroes in this country was without land. When you have some land, then you have something to go on. Land is the basis of all uh, economic independence or economic stability or economic security. Land is the most important thing, and this is the number one thing that the black people in America have never had since we were kidnapped from Africa and brought here to, make, to be made slaves uh, by the white man. And, and when, you come in, when you tell me that, uh, uh, that there are $20 uh, billion, yes, it is in the hands of many Negroes, but the upper-class or middle-class Negro, there's no such thing as upper-class Negro, who has the control of this wealth, instead of using it like the white man has done to establish businesses and factories and industry for his kind, the black people who have this wealth spend that wealth imitating the white man rather than establishing businesses and factories and other type of industry. You have immigrants in this country, right here in Philadelphia, who haven't been here 50 years and, have come, and who came here poor. Yet they have gone downtown here in Philadelphia and set up stores with their names on them. And when their children come out of school, their children have jobs in which to work. They have set up factories with their name on them. They, and when, and uh, their children have jobs when they come out. Now, Negro, you and I, our forefathers, have been here 400 years. We have been up from so-called slavery since the emancipation, 100 years. And, and, uh, and, and as the uh, New York Times brought out, we control $20 billion a year, and yet you can't point in any direction and look at factories that are being set up by these wealthy Negroes. All they're doing is taking that money and, and forcing the white man to sell him a house uh, in, in, in the white neighborhood to try and imitate the uh, social life of the white man. They're trying to uh, escape from being a Negro. They're trying to escape from being black. They're trying to escape from what they were born as, and they're using what uh, they do have instead of to uplift their people, to, to force themselves upon white people and live among white people. 
I disagree with you on two instances. And on that integrated lunch counters that you pointed out as a step forward, you should be ashamed of yourself because anytime you have 20 million black people in this country who contributed 310 years of slave labor to make the uh, economic system of America as strong as it is, to think that the black masses whose ancestors made this contribution of sweat and blood, even in the war, to make America what it is, do you think that they would be satisfied today just to sit down at a restaurant with a, with a, with a Mississippi white man or, a, or an Alabama white man as a just compensation for these 310 years of, of, of slave labor? Why, it's insane. And I'm it, not, I'm Mrs. not, Rich? I disagree with Malcolm in several instances. First of all, I challenge the statement that land is the basis of our economic system. Now, I certainly would not say that it is not an important factor in our economic system. It is. But it is not the factor on which our economic system rests, and I think most students of economics are aware of this. Secondly, I want to comment on Malcolm's statement that the Negro is rejecting himself as a Negro. This is not true. I think that, that the middle-class Negro is rejecting the fact that he is a Negro. This is not true. I think that the sit-in movement, I think that the Freedom Riders, I think all of these uh, point out graphically the assertion of the Negro as a person and as a Negro. I am a Negro, and I am a Negro-American. Uh, and this is important, and I think that many other Negroes feel this way. The third point that I want to make, and I think this is important, is that the fight for integrated lunch counters is much more than the fight to sit down and drink a glass of water with a white Southern segregationist. It's an assertion of one's equality and human dignity, and it's merely a statement saying, I will go where I please, and I will do what I will in this country, which is supposed to be free. I think that the sit-in movement, the Freedom Riders, indicate the intense desire of the American Negro to redeem the Constitution. And I think this kind of constructive action in the local community is one of the most effective ways of realizing this goal in the very near future. Our guests on the talk of Philadelphia, Mrs. Evelyn Rich of CORE, Regional Representative of the Northeast uh, Section of the United States for the Congress of Racial Equality, Mr. Malcolm X, who is a leader in the Muslim movement, and sitting in as guest host, Mr. Eustace Gay, former editor, now treasurer and business manager of the Philadelphia Tribune. Malcolm X, I know there are many people wondering, as, as I have uh, from the first time I heard your name, why the X? <coughs> Uh, well, Mr. Harvey, if a Chinese walked in the door and said his name was Patrick Murphy, you'd know that somewhere along the line he must have met with foul play, because Chi and Patrick Murphy is an Irish name, an Irishman is a white man, and anybody with intelligence knows that a yellow man has no business with a white man's name, and if it's absurd for a yellow man to have a white man's name, it's that much more absurd for 20 million black people to walk around here in America with the white man's name. And Mr. Muhammad teaches us that back during slavery, if there was a white man named Smith and he had 50 slaves, every, every slave on that plantation would be named Smith. And if the, uh, uh, a slave's own uh, mother could, or, or brother could be on a, a plantation across the field owned by Mr. Jones, but his last name would be Jones. The last name 
of the white man actually denoted on the Negro whose property he was. And we who follow the Honorable Elijah Muhammad here in America, when we come into the knowledge of Islam and, and accept or go back to our original culture, the Islamic culture, we completely reject the uh, last name of the white man. And since we don't know the uh, surnames that our people had when they came to this country, uh, we used an X. And that X uh, will stand, as we're taught by the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, until God comes at the end of the world and gives us a name out of his own mouth. I understand that Elijah Muhammad has given you another name, however. Shabazz? Shabazz. Uh, yes. He can, give us, he can give all of his laborers' names. But the reason that I don't use the name Shabazz publicly uh, is so that people, just like you just did, will ask me, why do I use the name X? And then I can explain it, because most Negroes actually today who come out of college graduate from college with a diploma and still don't realize that they're walking around here with their slave master's name. And if you don't think a name makes any difference, a man can come here from Africa and can be black as ink and go into Mississippi with the name Abdul Sharif, and uh, they'll, they'll, all of the barriers are let down. But uh, 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 an American so-called Negro can graduate from Harvard and speak with a Harvard accent, have a pocket full of money, and be well-dressed, and he can't go anywhere he wants right here in the city of Philadelphia. Mrs. Rich, do you believe in, in her marriage? Yes, I do. Malcolm? If we are anti-anything, we're anti-intermarriage. -inter uh, the, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad teaches us that intermarriage will bring about the destruction of both the white race and the black nation. And we're, we are. We're absolutely against intermarriage. Inter and we think that most integrationists believe in intermarriage. And we also believe that the ultimate objective of most integrationists actually is not the betterment of the black people of America, but the betterment of their own personal ambi ambitions. And if you notice, whenever you find integrationists, usually they are involved themselves in a mixed marriage. Walter White, the former head of the NAACP, after he got prominent, he divorced a black woman, married a white woman. I think James Farmer, the national director of Corps, According to the New York uh, Times uh, newspaper, he divorced a black woman in 1946, and he right now is married to a white woman. And we who follow the Honorable Elijah Muhammad don't think that a black man who was married to a white woman can even speak out and lead black people today. You know yourself, sir, if a white man marries a black woman, usually his own people reject him. His mother, his father, his brothers, and his own sisters reject him. And if his own family rejects him, you know that his race itself will never accept him as their spokesman. Well, likewise, with black people. When today, when, a, when black people, the black masses, find a black man who is married to a white woman or a black woman who is married to a black man, the black masses, the majority today, do not accept them as any kind of leader or spokesman because they don't think they can represent us. Well, I, I want to say this, that the figures will show, Malcolm, that in these communities where boys and girls have been going to school for a long number of years in interracial, what we call interracial schools, that the percentage of uh, interracial marriages is so low that it, it even... It negligible. Uh, negligible. Uh, this is an important point, Malcolm, oh, and yeah. I'd like to, to comment on it further. Uh, when I say I believe in intermarriage, I mean that I believe that any two people who decide that they want to get married ought to be able to do so. Now, when you speak out so 
authoritatively against intermarriage, I must say, very frankly, that you are speaking out against me. I am a black woman and I am married to a white man. I must say that your conclusions do not follow. I certainly have not, quote, improved myself, unquote, as a result of my marriage to a white man. And I would further like to say that none of my black has rubbed, out, uh, rubbed off on him, at least not to my knowledge. And further, and I think this is important, I do not consider myself a leader of anybody except m myself, me. I am a representative for myself and I am a Negro. I am very much a Negro and I certainly don't reject my do identity. I am a Negro American. Well, I, I happen to be a black American. I, so I want person. to say this. Yeah. I'm very much an American. Yes. I believe in the things which, on which our country is founded. And I think this is important because in many senses, I think it has been stated quite cogently that if America is to be redeemed and if democracy is to survive and flourish, in many senses, the Negro will play an important role in this. I think this is true. I think that certainly instances during the past year illustrate this. And I think that CORE's basic philosophy rests on this assertion, namely that essentially a human being has certain things which he shares with other human beings. And this essential unity transcends color, national origin, uh, religious feelings. These things are important, and I think that they are meaningful in terms of our whole social fabric. Yep. Now, one other comment, Ed, before I uh, defer to uh, Mr. Gay or Malcolm, and I think this is important. Many people have suggested that the Freedom Rides, for instance, have hurt American prestige abroad seriously. I do not hold with this view. On the contrary, I feel that the instances in Alabama, as tragic as they were initially, have pointed out two things. First of all, the assertion of the Negro, of his dignity and his equality. And secondly, the willingness of the federal government to come to his support, not only legally but morally, on an important legal and moral question. And these things are important within the entire fabric or framework of the discussion we're having here this afternoon. This was Mrs. Rich. Malcolm, if you will answer briefly, I have two more questions to ask, and then we'll go to the phone calls. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, I think you find, sir, that it's almost impossible today for a uh, black man to marry a white woman and take her into a white neighborhood. The white man won't allow it. I don't care how liberal he is. And uh, there's a growing tendency among black people uh, whereas a black man used to take a white woman into on his arm into a black neighborhood and she'd be accepted there and treated almost like a, a goddess, there's a growing tendency today to reject both of them. And uh, if you'll notice where New York is concerned, where most of these mixed marriages are involved, they they end up in a situation where they can't live in a, uh, an all-white community and they can't live in an all-black community. So usually they end up down in the village. There are exceptions. But usually they end up down in the village of New York where immorality is not one of the uh, yardsticks that you measure, another, or rather morality or high morals is not a yardstick that you measure one another by. Uh, we think that it actually absolutely destroys both the white man as a race and the black people as a nation when this intermarriage takes place. And as I say frankly, we're a thousand percent against intermarriage in any form. It's time for the phone calls. Our guest, Malcolm X. One of the leaders of the Muslim movement, Mrs. Evelyn Rich of CORE, 
and Mr. Eustace Gay of the Philadelphia Tribune. Our number is Mohawk 7, M-O-7-0-500. The opinions heard on the talk of Philadelphia are not necessarily those of WCAU or CBS Radio. Could we have your question or comment, please? Oh, Ed, uh, I don't feel that Mal Mr. Malcolm's religious philosophy would solve the problems of the human race. Uh, I go along with Mrs. Rich from the Corps. Now, I am a white person and a half-white. But uh, what I resent is when the uh, Negroes say the white man and their white race are against them for their, uh, for their human rights. Now, I'm just a half-wife, and I'm certainly for their rights. This land of opportunity could afford life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for all its inhabitants, regardless of race, creed, or national origin. And I've often wondered if it was a matter of life or death, would we care whose life-giving blood was injected in our veins? Or would we question whose eyes were used to restore our sight? Thank you, and I'll hang up. No, thank you for calling. Yes, sir. Well, uh, the, the lady who just spoke, she's, when she says that America is the land of opportunity, the land of opportunity for whom? You have 20 million black people here who are still relegated to the role of second-class citizens, who are still knocking on the doors of the White House a hundred years since the so-called Emancipation Proclamation, trying to get somebody to pass civil rights and recognize them not as a human being but as a citizen. And the Muslims are not looking for any white people to accept us or recognize us as citizens. We feel that's putting the uh, uh, cart before the the horse. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad says that until the white man realizes that the black man is a human being, you will never get any civil rights legislation or anything else that uh, will make the, that is uh, designed to make black people recognize her as equals or anything else. So we don't try for citizenship. What we're striving for is human rights. And to, to get these human rights, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad insists upon complete moral reformation among our people. And when that is brought about, automatically our status is elevated. First of all, the fight for civil rights is a fight which is waged not only in the legislative halls of Congress or by executive order of the President. This fight also includes the active personal sacrifices of the American, the white American as well as the Negro American. And I think, for instance, that James Peck's uh, uh, staunch devotion to the principles of nonviolence when he was attacked at that, by that mob in Birmingham illustrates vividly the fact that the white person in America, many of them are willing to make personal sacrifices of a high level. I think that and this is my second comment, and this I think is extremely important, that it is Core's goal not to humiliate the white man, not to defeat him, not to sentence him to death, but rather to convert him, to give him an opportunity to have his attitudes challenged and his opinions changed so that he can come into the arena with us and work out a solution to this problem quickly and efficiently and now. This is extremely important. Let's get on with the phone call, shall we? Yes. All right. um, I would like to just one little short thing, sir. It's All very right. important. I think where Miss uh, uh, Rich misses the boat, so to speak, being married to a white man herself, automatically it puts her out of 
touch, so to speak, with the real feelings of the masses of our people here in America who actually don't have enough patience left to give the white man sufficient time to be converted or to be changed. Well, I'm you are one of these people who do not have the patience. Sir? You are one of these people who do not only am I one, but I think I reflect the thinking and the feelings of the masses who uh, are absolutely fed up or who don't think that there's time enough left for, uh, for the white man to be converted or changed. And we're not trying to change him, we're trying to change our people. I am one of these persons too, one of these black Americans who is impatient with the slow change. I am uh, an active member in a Negro church, I go to a Negro hairdresser, and I am as, as much in touch with Negro life as is Mr. X, I would like you to You should clear up that word Negro before you go too far. Well, we've been into that, the so-called Negro, as you call them. Uh, let's take some more of those calls, all right? This is Ed Harvey. Could we have your question or comment? Uh, my comment is that uh, I go along wholeheartedly with uh, the brother Malcolm there. Because any person or any colored person, or I say any African American, I wouldn't say Negro because I do not believe in that myself. I think that any African American who believes, or I, or I say, who believes that integration is going to solve the problem, I think they're actually playing folly with themselves because total integration will ultimately mean mongrelization, and no white man is going to stand for that. You see, in other words, if you go, if you say that, or uh, if you believe that integration is going to solve the thing, I mean, it's, I think it's just playing folly with yourself. And another thing, when he says he speaks for the masses of the people, uh, I believe he's right, because when you, uh, a lot of color people are not even aware of the situation that they're in socially. When you go to a psychiatrist, he tells you to lay on the couch and to, and to and dig into yourself and bring out the actual truth. The actual truth is that uh, no, no colored man can ultimately be uh, integrated, so to speak, to the fullest, to the absolute extent with white people. I believe they're two different products, and separately, or when the white, colored man becomes liberated, that's when he will, be, will excel and, and, uh, and have his dignity. That's what I believe. I don't uh, believe any comment is needed. Uh, I think it's pretty well established that uh, Mrs. Rich is against what you say and the Malcolm X is for what you say. So thank you for that opinion, All right, sir. Thank you. thank you for calling. This is Ed Harvey. May we have your brief question or comment? Hello, Ed. My name is Paul. Hey, you've really got something going there today. Thank you. Welcome back. And uh, we just heard uh, excerpts uh, from a radio broadcast over uh, WCAU in Philadelphia from 1961, a debate uh, between uh, Evelyn Rich and uh, Malcolm X uh, on uh, which way forward uh, for uh, the African-American people uh, in uh, 1961. And uh, this is our Black History Month uh, programming for 2023. And, of course, we're going to take a brief break, and uh, we'll be back with our concluding segment uh, of the Pan-African Journal for today. Sunday, uh, February 19th, 2023. Deep down inside, I know I still Bye. 
Special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, February 19, 2023. And we're going to move into another uh, rare archival audio file of Malcolm X. Uh, This time, uh, three years later, after his departure from the Nation of Islam, being interviewed on the same radio station uh, by the same host, uh, Ed Harvey, uh, WCAU in Philadelphia. Let's listen uh, to this uh, discussion uh, with Malcolm X. Uh, from 1964. Now, you said control politics and control politicians. Uh, I mean, uh, is this what you really mean? You, uh, well, I mean, you, uh, it, I mean it like this, that I think uh, that the, the politicians in the white neighborhood are controlled by the whites in that neighborhood. Most, uh, no white community would allow uh, the politician in its community to be controlled by someone outside the community who doesn't have the good of that community at heart. Whereas in the Negro community, as a rule, the politician is part of the political machine. The political machine is white, and the political machine isn't uh, uh, really concerned with the conditions that exist in the Negro community, only to the extent that being concerned helps the whole overall objective of that that political machine. So the only way to get uh, real progress in the Negro community is to make our people at the mass level conscious of politics and, and that which politics is supposed to produce for us. 
once they can see what the politician is supposed to produce, then they themselves can throw their weight behind the politician who's producing. And it is, and it is the responsibility of the politician who represents the community to go out here and eliminate the desegregated school system. You don't have to pick at a school. The mayor is responsible. The governor is responsible. The politicians are responsible. So it's our intention to make our people conscious of this. And just, just to give an example, I was in Washington, D.C. a couple of weeks ago when they were debating whether or not to let the, the uh, Civil Rights Bill come to the floor, listening to Dirksen and some of these others debate whether uh, the Negro is qualified to be a citizen or a human or whatever it was they had in mind. And one of the things I noticed in the back of the Senate gallery, Senate, uh, uh, gallery was, uh, or the Senate floor was a huge map which shows the distribution of Negroes in this country and, and, and oddly in, in the areas where Negroes uh, were the most densely uh, populated, where the areas were most densely populated by Negroes, these were the senators and the congressmen doing the most to stop civil rights legislation. Whereas if the Negroes in these areas were permitted to vote, they could sweep out of office the same segregationists and racists who are now in control of the government. Well, if you feel this strongly, then why don't you, uh, why don't you run for office? As I understand it, you, uh, you control a, a, a pretty good segment up there in Harlem. You, last time you were with me, I asked you what the membership was. You were then with uh, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, and you didn't want to tell me. Now that you're not with the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, could you tell me what the uh, membership is? Membership is uh, in Harlem. I mean, what percentage of Harlem? Uh, well, I, I, can, I'll only, I can only answer you like this. All yeah. of our people who are oppressed, exploited, dissatisfied, and impatient are thinking along the same lines today, politically, economically, socially, and otherwise. Philosophically so and otherwise. This takes in a pretty good hunk of Harlem. Certainly. Well, not only Harlem, Philadelphia Well, I'm talking Harlem. about from uh, your, your particular, your immediate home right now. Yes. You don't have Florida or California yet. We haven't given that to you yet, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. The thing Already that, thinking about uh, I am one black man, uh, Mr. Harvey, who doesn't think that the white man is going to give up anything. What the black man gets, he's going to have to fight for it. He's going to have to earn it. He's going to have to take it. Nothing will be given to him. Well, then and you say you don't advocate violence. And if any, no. Well, uh, how you, what's fighting if it isn't violence? Well, uh, I think you'll find a fight going on in the Senate right now. And, then, and they haven't gotten violent yet, mm -hmm. but at the same time, they've gotten uh, philosophically violent. Uh, if any time you have a, a government, and I think 16 of the senatorial committees that control the government, uh, 10 of them are in the hands of southern senators. Uh, out of the 20 congressional committees that control the government, 12, 12 of them are in the hands of southern congressmen. Now, here you have the uh, uh, 10 out of 12 committeemen, uh, 10 out of, uh, out of six, 10 out of 16 committeemen at the senatorial level are southern segregationists. Twelve out of twenty committeemen at the congressional level are southern senators, and they're going to tell us that the South lost the war. Why, the committees that govern the government are in the hands of southern segregationists. And the, the president himself is from a state that is a state of discrimination and segregation. He's, the, he's in the same category with Eastland and Ellender and all of the rest. So when Negroes become conscious of politics, politically mature, and they begin to see the con game that's taking place today, especially where the Democratic Party is concerned. Because it was the Negroes, I think out of the, uh, out of the uh, representatives, 257 of them are Democrat, and only uh, 177 of them are Republican. Two-thirds of the Congress is controlled by the Democratic Party. Out of the, out of the 100 senators, 67 of them are Democrat, and only 33 are Republican. Uh, Two-thirds of the Senate, Senate is controlled by uh, the Democratic Party. And it is the Negro vote that has kept the Democratic Party in power and has kept it in, party in, in the power in Washington, D.C. Despite the fact that the Negro puts the Democratic Party first, the record shows that the, Negro, that the Democratic Party puts the Negro last. And the Democratic Party is able to fool the Negro by telling him that it is the Dixocrats in the South 
that who are doing it. And a Dixocrat is nothing but a Democrat in disguise. The same man who's, ho who's over the entire Democratic Party is over the Dixocrats as well as the Democrats. And when Negroes begin to wake up and analyze this political situation, then the Negro is in a position to bring about a bloodless revolution in America by, with the ballot. He'll be in a position to sweep out of office these Southern segregationists who occupy strategic positions over strategic committees. And this in itself will revolutionize America's foreign policy as well as America's domestic policy, and it might save America. But if it is not done with the ballot, then it's going to have to be done with the bullet. I don't know why you don't run and just say all this on the Senate floor, uh, Malcolm. We'll, we'll be back with Malcolm X in just a minute. Shaker, it's a one beer to have when you're having more than one. Shaker, pleasure doesn't fade even when your thirst is done. The most rewarding flavor in this man's world for people who are having fun. Shaker is a one beer to have when you're having more than one. Elizabeth Taylor says in the new issue of Look Magazine, the children know that Richard and I love each other and that everything is going to work out all right. Now in Look, see Elizabeth Taylor, her six-year-old daughter Liza, and her new husband, Richard Burton. In Look, you'll find out for yourself why Miss Taylor says daughter Liza and Burton are great buddies. You'll read about the unique word game they play as a family. And you'll find out in Look, six full-color pages of Elizabeth Taylor and Liza romping through a vacation in tropical Mexico. Why does Elizabeth Taylor say Liza has a bit of the miracle about her? Everything about her has been extraordinary. In what way is Liza like her father, Mike Todd? How does Liza react to her mother's fame? Get the answers in Look. In this Look exclusive, you'll see one of the world's most beautiful women and one of the world's liveliest six-year-olds as they share precious moments together. It's in the new issue of Look, biggest selling, most vital magazine in its field. Get Look today. Our guest is Brother Malcolm, or Malcolm X. We're talking to you from Convention Hall, the Travel Vacation and Outdoorsman Show. Malcolm, what, uh, what is your opinion uh, uh, as a politician uh, of Adam Clayton Powell? Well, Adam Clayton Powell probably is uh, the only Negro politician of national stature who is completely independent of any political machine. He's in a more powerful position politically than any, than any other Negro politician, primarily because the Negro in New York is different from Negroes anywhere else in the country in that they are exposed to uh, such a, uh, uh, a great deal of news. The United Nations is there. They're more uh, highly sophisticated where politics and international politics are concerned than any other Negroes in the country. Then, and, and for that reason, it is less, uh, they are less influenced by the propaganda from the daily news media when it's unleashed against another Negro. So, so that you think that this has all been uh, misleading and oh, yes. uh, misconstrued and everything that uh, we hear that uh, happens with him in Puerto Rico and Europe? I mean, this is... Uh, no, this I'm is not saying that. I'm saying that the, despite all of the uh, negative aspects of Mr. Powell's daily life that is uh, uh, ma uh, magnified by the press and projected as his whole image instead of only a part of his image, the Negro is able to look and see this and realize what is being done or, or the effort that's being made. And uh, they overlook it so that it keeps Powell in the best way for Powell to remain in Washington, D.C. is for the white press to continue to attack him. This automatically gets the Negro support. You, uh, you said earlier that you don't recruit 
Uh, and yet uh, Cassius Clay says that you converted him, which is in a form recruiting. Well, only he and I are friends, and the, it wasn't an active uh, effort that was made to uh, recruit him. But Cassius has been a Muslim for four or five years. And uh, I, he and I happen to be very good friends. I was with him in Miami before the fight. I had a chance to study him. Cassius has more depth than is uh, realized by most people. He's a very, very deep-thinking person. He has strong convictions. He's more intelligent than, they give him, intelligent than they give him credit for. In fact, Cassius actually made Sonny Liston whip himself. Not only did he beat Sonny Liston, he beat the press. He beat the Miami Boxing Commission. He, he even beat the medical examination, the examiner who gave him his uh, examination before the fight. And I think that when people realize that he did this with his brain, then they will somewhat get a better idea of how, how brainy the man actually is. And, in, and also, in my opinion, Cassius is a good example of the new type of Negro that's coming into existence in America today. The very fact that Cassius will say, I am the greatest. Negroes don't say this. Negroes have been fed the type of uh, brainwashing that America is an expert at to the point where most of them have an inferiority complex and don't want to be superior. They don't want to be the greatest. They just want to be great. Or they don't want to be uh, supreme. They just want to be equal, you know. So uh, Cassius represents this young, new type thinking Negro today who feels that he is uh, within himself just as capable of becoming the greatest or as great or whatever else anybody else is. He might. I don't think he's the greatest poet, or ever will be, I'll tell you that. Uh, do you? Well, there are different forms of poetry. Yes, <laughs> that's, that's, that's uh, is for sure. Uh, I, uh, I've got a couple of more. I'll tell you what, let's get the business out of the way so we can go right straight through and not uh, be hampered anymore. And uh, so we'll be back with Malcolm X in just one minute. Right now, you know, many people who pay big money for automatic washer to simplify wash day... They complicate it right all over again. First, they use a detergent for a clean wash. Then, for a soft wash, they have to stop the washer before the final rinse cycle. Measure. Then they add a fabric softener, and then they have to start the washer all over again. So why waste the time, the trouble, and the money? Change to Instant Fells Soap Granules, the laundry product with its own built-in fabric softener. Instant Fells keeps clothes soft. It gets clothes clean. You get a softer wash without the bother and expense of adding a fabric softener to the final rinse. So get Instant Fells with a built-in fabric softener. Another Fells product with something extra to make your work easier. You'll find Instant Fells with a built-in fabric softener at your Acme supermarket. And remember, it's there that you get low prices plus S&H green stamps. So stop at Acme. While you're there, be sure to get Instant Fells, another Fells product with something extra to make your work easier. Brother Malcolm, you... Uh, you just extolled the virtues of uh, Cassius Clay, the fact that he is smart and he's uh, brilliant. Uh, as I understand it, he's uh, sticking with Elijah Muhammad. He's not following you in, the, in uh, this new movement. I, I'm happy that he is. In fact, uh, when I made the move that I did, if you read, I stated at that time that it was my hope and desire that all of the followers of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad would stay with him. I'm not uh, interested in carrying on any kind of competition against him, but rather to work among the non-Muslim so-called Negroes uh, in a program that doesn't have any religious restrictions, but is designed to give all of our people an opportunity to become actively involved in an action program that will eliminate the social, political, and economic evils that exist in our community. Uh, uh, and uh, one thing that must be stressed, you see, I, as I said, I didn't lead the Nation of Islam. I never would have left it of my own volition. And when I was put out, I, not only was I put out, but 
the Honorable Elijah Muhammad's only son, who is a minister, uh, who formerly was a minister right here in Philadelphia, Minister Wallace D. Muhammad. He was put out right along with me. And, uh, for similar reasons? For about the same reason, yes. Uh. And uh, so, but I don't think that this in any way serves any purpose. The main thing we're interested in is getting uh, an active program on the road, an action program on the road, that all of our people can take part in and uh, get this uh, job accomplished, get the problem solved. Well, now, you say that Martin Luther King and uh, other civil rights leaders have made uh, no headway, or certainly not uh, the headway that you want to see made. What headway do you think that, that you have made? Uh, because you've been talking for a long while. You've been quoted in uh, national publications. You've been on network television and radio. Now, what headway have you made? Well, most people give uh, us the credit for the headway that Martin Luther King and the nonviolent movement has made. Uh, the same when, uh, when Jomo Kenyatta was in prison in, uh, in Kenya, uh, Tom Mboya became very famous, not because the colonial powers loved Tom Mboya, but Tom Mboya represented the lesser of two evils. Uh, Kenyatta was supposed to have been the head of the Mau Mau, so that uh, when it came to choosing between the lesser of two evils, they uh, would uh, go along with Mboya. Here in this country, the entire nonviolent civil rights struggle has been listened to to a degree and has been given some token, token recognition and some token gains only to keep the Negro from, in, from becoming involved in anything that was too militant and, and that which was non, non-violent. An example, on, uh, February the, uh, on May the 15th of, uh, uh, of last year, on page 26 of the New York Times, uh, it quoted President Kennedy as telling some Southern uh, uh, news editors that they had to give some kind of token gains to the moderate Negro leadership in order to enhance its image to keep the Negroes from going or becoming involved with the Negro extremists, and he specified at that time the Muslims. So what, what's happening here? It's showing that the pre late president himself uh, was trying to get these Southern segregationists to give some token gains to the moderate Negro civil rights groups, not because uh, their cause was just, but because in so doing, it would enhance their leadership image among the Negro masses and keep the Negro masses from going with the more militant Negro group. So uh, the gains that were received by these moderate Negro leaders, they only received them because uh, the fear of the threat that was posed by groups that were more militant than they. Are you anti-Semitic? anti-Semitic. You've uh, met many of the things that I've read about you, and you've made a mention a couple of times about the Jews and everything, and I'm wondering if you are personally anti-Semitic. No. Uh, how can I be anti-Semitic when the Arabs are semi Half the Muslim world are, is Semitic. If I was anti-Semitic, I'd be anti-Arab and anti-everything uh, yeah. else. No, I think this, that in this country, there's one mistake that the Jews make. Uh, they put themselves in a position where whenever anybody gives an objective analysis of the role that they play, uh, they defend themselves by accusing you of being anti-Semitic. And, and uh, a Negro is not anti-Semitic when he says that the, the man who's exploiting him in his community is white because it is a white man who owns all the stores. Now, is it a, an accident that these whites who own these stores are Jewish? If it's an accident, then uh, the fact that he says the Jew on the corner is exploiting me isn't an anti-Semitic statement. It's just more descriptive of the man who's exploiting him. Is it true that the uh, the leader of the Nazi Party was given an honored position at one of your uh, the leader of the Nazi Party in America was given an honored position at one of your meetings? Uh, there was a, a convention held in Chicago, to which was invited anyone who wanted to come, and uh, this particular person whom you mentioned came uh, along with other whites, 
And uh, at that meeting, they were get, anybody who wanted to contend with Mr. Muhammad or support Mr. Muhammad was given an opportunity to do so. He stood up, and, he stood up on the floor in front of the podium and expressed himself, but he did not meet any receptiveness uh, among black people. Nobody who is a Nazi or who in any way advocates white supremacy or who is in any way anti-black will ever get any reception among black people. I don't make any distinction between a, 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 a Nazi racist or, or, uh, or any other kind of racist. They're all racist where we're concerned. But I don't think you should put any weight on the Nazis, that there aren't enough of them in this country. They're not the ones who, who created the segregated school system that, you, that our people are suffer, suffering under. They're not the ones who are behind the segregating housing pattern. So the Nazis, are, uh, uh, if, if that many of them exist, are only being used as scapegoats. The ones, who, the ones who are really responsible are these that call themselves Democrats and Republicans and, and other lily-white organizations. Malcolm, we only have a minute left. Uh, you, you are a very, uh, a very uh, nice fellow to talk to because you do talk. That's one thing. You have an engaging smile. Do you still consider yourself the angriest Negro in America? I think a man can be at his angriest when he's smiling. Is that right? I have a little difficulty smiling myself. When Not I'm a mad. black man in America. The black man in America has lived in such a, a, a an, an ambiguous society that he has he has he has, he has uh, been forced to develop a very flexible acrobatic face. And when you find the black man smiling, it's not always from his heart. And I think the day that the white people realize this, then they'll take a more sincere effort to eliminate some of these injustices. Our guest has been Brother Malcolm, or Malcolm X, uh, who I understand got a mere three hours sleep last night just to be here with us today. And for that, I thank you very much for thank joining you. us, Malcolm uh, X, on WCAU. Welcome back. And uh, that was an uh, interview and radio appearance uh, by... Malcolm X in 1964 in Philadelphia. And that's going to conclude uh, our program uh, for today, uh, Sunday, February 19th, 2023. Uh, we're going to continue uh, in the next uh, two programs to focus on African-American History Month. We'll also have news on developments in, on the African continent and in, throughout the inter international community. We're going to close out uh, this program uh, with uh, the music of Hayda Brooks from the 1957 album entitled Femme Baton. This is uh, Abayomi uh signing off, and have a beautiful week. can see it in your eyes. I can hear it in your sight. Feel your touch and realize the thrill
I will live 
never forsake me. Say that we'll never part. Go out with a crowd, but for crying out loud, make me a part of Please be kind. 
night Like no other I dream of Or will I pass him by And never even know that he is mine I'm mm-hmm.